This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. When his son was diagnosed with autism, Rupert Isaacson feared he might never communicate with his child. But when he discovered that his son Rowan responded to horses, they traveled to Mongolia, the spiritual home of the horse, where shaman healing hands banished the tantrums, the incontinence, and the hopeless isolation. A year later, though, Rowan started regressing. And it was only then that Rupert remembered that the shaman had told him that he and Rowan must make three more healing journeys. So they went to the bushmen of Nambia and Australia's coastal rainforests, and finally to America's Navajo Reservation, discovering new ways of connecting with autistic children using nature, movement, and animals, unlocking children from their most severe autistic symptoms, and developing the two now internationally known programs, Horse Boy Method and Movement Method. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Rupert Isaacson about all of this, about his journey, about his son, about horses, and most of all, the story of Rupert and Rowan's journeys of incredible love and extraordinary adventures that's going to test their strength, their courage, and change their lives and the lives of the families who joined them forever. I'm Armin Brott. We'll jump into all of this and a lot more when our show continues right after this. This message is for all of you sitting in the passenger seat, and apologies if it gets a little uncomfortable, but how does it feel to be at the mercy of someone who thinks a random text is more important than your life? Someone who takes their eyes off the road while speeding along in a three-ton hunk of steel. Freaky, right? Well, why not just ask them to stop? Or better yet, volunteer to text for them. It might be a little awkward, but believe me, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Rupert Isaacson, who is the author of the Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. Rupert, why don't you give us a little bit of a, a background, since this is this is the second book, and you talked about this much more extensively in, in your first book and in, in uh, some documentary films that you made. Um, give us some, some sense of, of how the whole horse boy thing came about. Okay. Um, well, in 2004, my son Rowan was diagnosed with autism, and... Um, Initially, um, like many parents in that position, I was being given a bunch of very negative information by neurologists, by therapists about what my son would not be able to do, etc. And the speech therapists um, and behavioral therapists that he was working with couldn't get much um, result with him. However, um, I noticed that he did better outside, so I followed him. I used to follow him outside all the time into the woods behind my house. One day he walked up to this horse, Betsy, who belonged to my neighbor, and she and he forged this relationship that was so extraordinary um, that I simply followed it. Now, fortunately, I was already a horse trainer, but I had actually been keeping my son away from horses because I thought he wasn't safe. Um, the relationship that he had with Betsy completely turned this around in my head. And when I used to put him on her back, um, all of his uh, stimming, his rocking, chanting, flapping, that stuff would just 
stop. And when I started riding with him in the same saddle with me, I got the first expressive speech. He became verbal. And it went from there. So he had not said anything or not very much until then? Yeah. He, like many kids on the spectrum, he had regressive autism. So he'd been uh, developing normally at about 1 to 18 months. He had been um, developing words, and then he regressed. He fell backwards, lost his words, floated away, and then had bits of what we call echolalia, where they will repeat little things that they hear, but they don't really understand what it is they're saying. Um, but that all changed once he was in the saddle with me. So I just lived in the saddle with him for about three years, and I taught him to read up there, painting letters on trees. Um, I taught him numeracy up there with getting friends and family members together and taking one away and adding one and dividing them, etc. And I really had something. Um, and then, um, because I had this career as a journalist and a human rights uh, campaigner, mostly working in Africa, the same year he was diagnosed, I had to bring a delegation of Bushman hunter-gatherers from Africa to the United Nations. Some of those guys were traditional healers in their culture, and they met Rowan, they worked on him a little bit, and they got a rather amazing result. He really did lose quite a lot of his more obsessive symptoms while he was with them. So I thought in my <laughs> slightly crazy way, is there a place that combines these two things that have had such a good effect on him, the horse and this type of healing? And I know something about the indigenous world. So yes, that's, that's Mongolia. That's where the horse comes from. <laughs> okay. And that's where you have a very strong system of shamanism. It's a real gut feeling. And by now, I was really looking at autism as an adventure, possibly the adventure, you know, of my life, not yeah. something to resist, not something to fight, something to dive into, because there were all these gifts that my son had. I was realizing how strong his intellect was, how right. huge his sort of empathy was. So we went to Mongolia, Wait, Ro and that was the first book. Um, right, Rupert, hang on just yeah. one sec. Let, yeah. let me take you back just a yeah. little bit, because you, you, you talked about the, the relationship between Absolutely. Uh, between Rowan and, and Betsy. What did that look like? I mean, I, I can see them yeah, you know, being head-to-head -head or, or petting uh, or something like that, but I'm kinda, what, what does a relationship with a, between a boy and a horse look like? Um, well, it looked like something I'd never seen before in 35 years of training horses. Um, there is, um, when, when Betsy went, when Rowan went through the fence um, to Betsy, he did something um, he should not have done, which is he lay on his back under her hooves, and he did that before I could grab him, and because he'd gotten away from me. And I um, was crawling, you know, up to the fence, creeping up to the fence, so I didn't spook her. I wanted to grab him and pull him back through the fence. She didn't trample him. What she did was she, she really modified her behavior. She bent her head and half closed the eye and began to lick and chew, which in um, horse language is a submission slash acceptance gesture, very similar to a dog showing its belly. And there are many techniques that horse trainers have for getting horses to do this, but I hadn't seen a horse spontaneously offer this before. And um, she would modify her behavior around him extraordinarily. Um, she was quite a rude horse. She was the alpha mare, the boss mare of this herd. And whenever she used to, you know, go after the other horses with her teeth and her hooves, but she would never do this around Rowan. And when he would lay on her back, she would virtually go to sleep. He, she would just close her eye and just drop her head and stay there as long as he wanted. Um, when I rode with her, with, with him in the saddle, she would be completely compliant and soft in a way that she wasn't when you would get on her back 
as it was just you as an adult, she'd, she'd have all kinds of arguments. She really completely modified her behavior around him. It was extraordinary. Okay. okay. And then how did his behavior change, though? So, I mean, I can see getting underneath horses' hooves, but he, he may not have understood how dangerous that was. No, he was. didn't understand that at all at the right. time. He just knew that he was, there was this, attract, this attraction, this bond. Um, but how his behavior changed was when he was on her back, just laying there, um, body to body, all of his stimming, the, what we call the self-stimulatory activity, right. the rocking, the flapping, that would stop. I had a really different kid. And then when I rode with him, not only did he become verbal, he became receptive to learning. Um, like I said, I could teach him literacy up there. I taught him to read up there. Mm-hmm. I taught him maths up there in a way that he was unreachable in other situations. And also right. his tantruming. Um, so autistic kids tantrum for neurological reasons. Um, their nervous system is overstimulated and can often be triggered by things like fluorescent strip lights or industrial noise and um, sometimes even a breath of wind can feel like fire or their clothes can feel like they weigh 10 tons suddenly. There's a lot of documented evidence of this now with adult autists who are reporting how it was for them as as young children. And particularly when they're young, this would all be out of the picture completely when we were on horseback moving. Okay, so you looked at this from a a variety of perspectives. You came to it from the perspective of, of looking at it from kind of traditional healing. I'm wondering if you discovered whether there's any actual science here that would explain why there is this big change. And, and, and Rowan was not the only child. We'll talk about that later. But there have been other kids who have been affected similarly by horses. Exactly. And it's not just horses. It's certain types of movements. So we went and did this extraordinary journey across Mongolia. And when I got back, I came back with a kid that was still autistic, but a kid who had left his three key dysfunctions behind him. In, in Mongolia, his incontinence, his tantruming, his inability to make friends. And he arrived back, this very functionally autistic young man. Think like temp, a junior Temple Grandin, if you know who she is. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I became curious. I thought, was well, it just my son? So I started running playdates in the neighborhood for other kids on the spectrum and families. We noticed very quickly a pretty universal response. And it was when the horse was in certain rhythms. This is key. Um, what we call in horse training collected rhythms, very soft, very slow, but with a lot of impulsion, what people call dressage, where the horse looks like it's dancing. Mm-hmm. And so not a if, trot. At, uh, if the trot is very collected, yes, and at the canter, if the canter is very collected, yes, okay. but not if it's harsh and running, no. Um, and we went to some neurologists, and because my, um, my ex, who I'm still very close to, Rowan's mother, is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas. We have access to a lot of scientists. And we went to them and said, why is this working? Showed them what we were doing, showed them video, not just here, but um, scientists in Germany, etc. They all came to the same conclusion. They said, ah, what you're doing is you're creating massive amounts of the feel-good and communication hormone oxytocin in the child's body through these hip-rocking rhythmic motions that when the horse is in this particular balance, this is what's going on, and you're doing this over, over hours, and this is having a really huge changing uh, effect in the, in the kid's nervous system and brain. So then we thought, okay, well, if this is true, um, does it have to be horses, or could we also do this with play equipment? Um, could I do it on my shoulders, in a swing, in a pool, on a trampoline? Because what about all the kids that don't have access to horses? So we started trying that, and we found that 
even though we got our best result with the horse, we could absolutely emulate this response. So we formulated something called Horse Boy Method to work with horses and something called Movement Method, which the, mm-hmm. the new book, The Long Ride Home, goes into, where we found we could really show parents, even in the middle of a city, what, how to get the same effect that Rome was having with Betsy in their backyard, um, in a park, even in their living room. Right. And suddenly the whole thing took fire. Talking with Rupert Isaacson, who's the author of The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Rupert about exactly what happened after Mongolia. I'm Armin Brock, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Rupert Isaacson, who's the author of The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. So you developed the movement method, which was based on taking some of these these large movements that, that seem to be better produced by horses, but taking them to other uh, other causes. And But at, at, at a point, you began to discover that Rowan's symptoms were regressing again. When we were in Mongolia um, at the end of that journey, um, he was worked on by a shaman of the reindeer people up in southern Siberia. These are people who actually herd reindeer, live on reindeer. They ride reindeer. It's amazing. And he he did a really powerful healing with Rowan. Um, 24 hours after the healing, Rowan used the toilet by himself and cleaned himself. It was extraordinary. What this healer said, he was called Ghost, was, you have to do three more journeys to fix this healing, to confirm it, or it will erode. And it doesn't have to, you don't have to come back and see me, but you have to go to some other healers. And he knew that I worked in Africa. He said, you know, there's very good healers down there, etc. Just make sure that you do this. So I took him at his word. And in fact, um, the year after, um, about a year after we got back from Mongolia, Rowan started to lose his continents and the tantrum started to creep back. So we went out to um, Southwest Africa, Namibia, where I work with Bushmen hunter-gatherers, and they worked on him. And not only did he regain what he'd lost, but what came after that was this extraordinary mathematical dialogue, a really complex one that hadn't been there before. What does that mean? After that, I was in Australia for work, so I took Rowan with, and um, we worked with a fantastic um, Kuku Yalanji Aboriginal shaman in the Daintree Rainforest up in the far north. And what came after that was what we call theory of mind, um, where you really understand that other people think differently to you. And the usual way that kids display this is through rule-based games and playing practical jokes, pranking. Kids on the autism spectrum can take things very literally. So the third and final year after Mongolia, um, we were on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. And um, we were with a really good healer there called Blue Horse. And on the final day of the three days of ceremonies, it was almost always three days, um, Rowan's conversation became like proper, spontaneous back and forth conversation, not the scripted sort of autism speak he had up until that point. Wow. I mean, were you surprised? It, it, so- well. it sounds like you've got a, an, a background in, in a lot of these things. So, so what might be surprising to, to ordinary people wasn't quite as surprising to you, but that must have been rather jarring experience. I, I have to say that after each of, of the ceremonies, um, whether it was Mongolia or any, any of the others, the one here in, in Arizona, the, the results always were um, startling.
startling. Um, now, I um, have been probably exposed to this sort of healing since I was a little boy because my family comes from Africa, um, and I probably saw my first shamanic healing on my grandfather's farm in Zimbabwe when I was seven, you know, so it's not as if this kind of stuff was a huge cultural leap for me that it might be for somebody else, but even so, I was pretty amazed. Wow. So you come home then after that, mm-hmm. and has has Rowan's been able to, to keep this up? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Now, you've got to remember there's a sort of an irrational component to what we do, which is the shaman is the healing nature, etc. And then there's the scientific aspect to what we do, where we understand now that it's certain types of movement that activate certain parts of the brain. First, the oxytocin effect through the hip rocking and rhythm, but then any way that you move um, in and problem solve, particularly balancing types of exercise, um, stimulate your cerebellum, and the cerebellum produces Purkinje cells, these funny named cells that act as circuits within the brain that make your brain communicate with itself properly and which people on the spectrum often have a deficit of. Um, that fires up the prefrontal cortex, which is reasoning and emotional mm-hmm. regulation. And then it causes you to produce a protein called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that's like a miracle grow for the brain. It just makes the brain produce scads of neurons. So we understand that movement, in these particular types of movement, are going to really put the child in an optimal position for learning. And that's movement method. That's what we now do. But yes, Rowan has continued this. And Rowan is now 14. And we've homeschooled him this way. uh, And we've schooled a number of kids this way. And we now teach school districts how to do it. Um, He now runs his own web-based television show um, called End Dangerous. If you go to this website, End Dangerous Safaris, write dangerous, put an E-N on the front of it, safaris on the end. He goes around the world um, following animals that are both endangered and dangerous. It's extraordinary, and it's all about toilet humor and ecology. So, yes, yes, he really has continued this. Wow. So let's take this a little bit more broad than than just Rowan. I mean, how are you helping families who aren't going to be able to pick up and go to Africa or Siberia or someplace else? Yeah, you certainly don't have to do that. Um, You don't even have to take a road trip to the Navajo Reservation. Um, What you need to do is understand how movement affects the brain, how being in nature, and by nature I mean a backyard, a park, I don't necessarily mean Gurley or Yellowstone National Park, means taking the child away from the bad sensory triggers that cause the neurological problems that block him from learning. Once you know this, um, you are really able to um, do most of the therapies for your own child and bring them further than a lot of other therapists working in clinical environments can do. So anyone listening, um, whether your child is autistic, ADD, ADHD, we have something called Movement Method. And um, our foundation, we now run a foundation, the Horse Boy Foundation, um, makes these services available um, for very, very little or for free for parents um, in the same position. All you've got to do is go on the website kidsmustmove.com. If you're within Central Texas, you can come to our place and we serve you for free. If you're from outside Central Texas, to do an online training of what we do is really cheap. It's like $75. We want to make this as available as possible because it works. And we now work in about 13 countries. We also wow. work with school districts. We, work, we collaborate with seven universities worldwide to create the curricula. We can now show you how to get everything from basic communication, literacy and numeracy, right up to things like calculating statistics and pi. 
um, all done whilst having fun in a pool or the forest without the kid really even knowing that they're learning. It really works. And our, our, our weekly outreach is now about 12,000 families. And you mentioned, actually, speaking of pie, you mentioned that you had a, a mathematical conversation with Rowan at one point. What did you mean by that? Well, what happened was that was after the second healing, the one in Africa. Um, he had basic numeracy at that point, but he wasn't really interested or stimulated by math. Um, when he got home from there, we start, he started um, going further than we'd gone before, um, starting to uh, talk about going halfway around or a quarter of the way around when I would um, ride him around in the round pen, an eighth of the way around, a sixteenth, and then he started putting fractions together and adding them and subtracting them from each other. And within about four weeks, he was adding and subtracting fractions in double figures and carrying the number on paper. It was an extraordinary leap. And he had been taught that someplace, or, or did he just come up with it? What happened was, I, I always one of, the, one of the things about movement methods is you follow the child. So as soon as the child starts displaying an interest, you, you, you nurture it in you, and you encourage it in a very specific way. So as soon as he started saying these things, I started setting up all sorts of exercises, first on the horse, and then on my shoulders, and then in the pool, and then on trampolines, anything I could find that we could sort of divide up or run around in sections. Um, and it, the key was movement. Like if you put a pizza on the table and wanted to cut it up into eighths and sixteenths, he wasn't interested. But as long as he could move, do it mm. with his body, he was. However, what was interesting was that once he'd been doing that for a few weeks, it then carried over to paper. This is what we find. Yeah. That with kinetic learning, this is what happens. Do it you with know, your body first, then paper. We only have about a minute left, but I want to have you just address this quickly, if you can. Mm. Um, this isn't a cure, right? It's not a cure. No, we're not looking for a cure. Um, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. We don't need to cure autism. What we need to do is help the challenges that go with autism, the, the tantruming, the incontinence, the, the social dis disabilities. But the autism itself um, often is a real brilliance, and that we want to nurture. Well, and there's also the fact that it's a spectrum, so you're going to get kids with a variety of, of severity of symptoms, right? Correct, and it's not just a spectrum. It's a continuum. So if you, if you address them the right way, and again, movement is key for this, um, you can bring a child from quite severe to really quite advanced. Um, for example, a good example of that, apart from Rowan, is Dr. Temple Brandon, who a lot of listeners will know. When she was three, she was rocking back and forth in a corner, wiping her blue on the wall. They were going to institutionalize her. Now she's a best-seller, the professor of animal science, you know, um, has revolutionized the livestock industry here. The, 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 the potential is unlimited when you understand how movement affects the brain. Rupert Isaacson is the author of The Long Ride Home, The Extraordinary Journey of Healing That Changed a Child's Life. And, Rupert, what's that website again for you? Um, if you want movement method, go to kidsmustmove.com. And for the book, you can either get it on Amazon or you can buy it directly from us and help the foundation, which is thelongridehomebook.com, thelongridehomebook. Great. Dot Rupert. Com. It's all in there. Rupert, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. Here's an Ask Mr. Dad question that is something that a lot of us have to deal with. Dear Mr. Dad, my five-year-old son was completely toilet trained. 
He'd given up his pacifier and was chattering away in full sentences, but ever since we brought our infant daughter home from the hospital, he's regressed. He's having accidents almost every night, has started sucking his thumb, and is speaking like a two-year-old. What is going on, and what can we do to get our boy to start acting his age again? Well, as annoying as it is, your son's behavior is actually very common, especially among firstborns. Think about it from his perspective. Until his baby sister showed up, he was the center of the universe, and he had you and your spouse all to himself. But now, that whiny little brat, in his view anyway, has displaced him. He sees how quickly you respond when the baby cries, and he's well aware of how much time you spend changing her diapers. So in the not-completely-rational mind of a five-year-old, if he cries more, wets his bed, and generally acts like a baby, you'll spend more time with him, just like you used to when he was an only child. In addition to the nighttime accidents, baby talk and thumb-sucking that you've noticed, newly created older siblings can offer develop a variety of other behavioral issues. These include becoming aggressive and demanding, having trouble sleeping, and temper tantrums, all of which are attempts to regain the attention and the love that he thinks he's lost. There's no question that your son's behavior is going to be frustrating. Fortunately, it's temporary. Once he gets used to having the baby around, that usually happens within four to six months, he'll gradually change back to his older, more mature self. In the meantime, try not to criticize his behavior or punish him for it. Instead, go along with it. At the same time, subtly remind him that he's a big brother with big brother abilities and privileges. There are a few things you can do to speed this process along. To start with, get out your old photo albums and show him pictures of when he was a baby. The goal here is to remind him that he was once an infant and that his new sister isn't getting anything that he didn't get when he was that age. Next, make a serious effort to spend time with him one-on-one. He needs your undivided attention, even if it's only for 15 minutes a day. Snuggle up in bed and read stories together. Do art projects, go for walks or bike rides, eat ice cream, all activities that only big kids get to do. Another way to help him get used to his new role is to show him how he can help with the baby, either by assisting with diaper changes or feedings or just entertaining her. Always supervise his contact with her, though. And don't push too hard. If your son resists your efforts to involve him in the baby care, back off a little bit. If you're too insistent, he may end up resenting his new sister. After all, she's your baby, not his. Finally, watch out for gifts. He's going to get jealous if every person who walks in the door brings something special for the baby and nothing for him but a pat on the head and a silly comment about how much fun it is to be a big brother. Yeah, right. So... Put the word out to friends and family to bring something small for your son as well. If you've got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting, we'd love to hear from you. You can drop us a line through our website, MrDad.com. If you've got an Ask Mr. Dad question, you can go to AskMrDad.com. Or if you've got a Parents at Play question or a segment idea, do drop us a line through that website, ParentsAtPlay.com. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, depending on which week it is. Hey, but hold on just a second. Don't go anywhere because there's a lot more positive parenting coming straight up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. every school bus and classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. 
you see me around the neighborhood and you tell me, then I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. So much of what we know about vitamins is wrong. We trust that the word vitamin is shorthand for health, and the more we consume, even in pill form, the better. Well, Yes, we need vitamins. Without them, no question we would die. Yet, despite a century of scientific research, there is little consensus around even the simplest of questions. How much of a vitamin does our body need? And once ingested, how does it help us? One thing experts agree on is that the best way to get our nutrients is in the foods that naturally contain them. But thanks to processed foods, whose natural vitamins and other chemicals have often been removed or destroyed, we allow marketers to use the addition of synthetic vitamins to seduce and blind us to what else might be missing, leading many of us to accept as healthy those products we should otherwise reject. In this part of today's show, we're going to be taking an expedition through history and across continents to reveal the surprising story of how we came to believe that food could be medicine, nature could come in pills, and that anything natural must be safe, and how this way of thinking opened the door for a multi-billion dollar industry and a rotating cast of confusing dietary trends. So stay with us. We're going to be demolishing a lot of those cherished myths you might have about nutrition and challenging you to reevaluate your own beliefs. It all starts right after this. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brought. My guest for this part of today's show is Catherine Price, who's the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionized the Way We Think About Food. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how have vitamins revolutionized the way that we think about food? Do well, we even know, need they... food anymore? <laughs> no, no, we don't need food at all. No, vitamins have revolutionized the way we think about food because they actually were the first superfood, as I like to put it. Um, they were only discovered about 100 years ago. 
the, the word itself was coined in 1911, and they basically introduced the idea that there were these invisible, miraculous substances found in food that could have these profound effects on our health. And that idea has been transferred from vitamins to all sorts of other dietary trends we see today. So, you know, for example, like the magic of the chia seed, which is really trendy right now, um, or dietary supplements, which the, the supplement industry has done a very good job of convincing us to call vitamins, even though there's only 13 human vitamins and there's uh, 85,000 dietary supplement products in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, just from my little bit of experience with this, and I don't do a huge amount of, of writing about vitamins, but... I haven't really found anybody who has said that they're absolutely necessary. Well, in fact, a lot of people well, say that they aren't. You shouldn't be shouldn't yeah. be taking vitamins unless you're somehow in a position or in, in an area where you're not able to get a well balanced uh, meal or well balanced meals for long periods of time. You're generally able to get the nutrients that you need out of whatever you're eating. Right. So what you're touching on is actually one of the biggest um, kind of confusions I came across when I was writing the book which is that we tend to use the word vitamin to refer to much more than actual human vitamins. So we tend to use the word vitamin and mean a pill. Like I was fascinated by how many people would say, you know, I'd say I'm writing a book about vitamins, and then they'd go immediately to pills, um, whereas the book really tries to go into the vitamins themselves as they're found naturally in food. Um, but to your point, yes, so you, we do need vitamins. There are 13 substances known as human vitamins. They're essential for our health. They are essential factors in all sorts of reactions that happen in our bodies that are necessary to keep us alive. With that said, that doesn't mean you have to get them from a pill. So as you're saying, you know, you can get these 13 vitamins from food. And in fact, that's probably why we evolved to not be able to make these vitamins ourselves. Um, we were able to get them from our diets or from our environments. So to answer your question, yes, it's quite possible to get the vitamins you need from your diet. I would say the only exceptions you'd have would be things like vitamin D, where it's kind of a weird vitamin, where actually the main source of it is the sun, um, the sun turning cholesterol in our skin into the precursor for it. I don't think actually vitamin D was meant to be consumed through food to begin with because it's in very few foods. Um, right, and but it's, it's some, fortified. It's, there's a lot of different foods that are fortified with the vitamin D milk and things like that. That Yes, exactly, yeah. which is interesting to me, though, because I just had thought, like I think many people do, that when you see a carton of milk or sometimes orange juice or whatever else, and it's, or cocoa puffs, for example, and it says vitamin D. I, I didn't think the cocoa puffs had vitamin D in them, but I thought that milk, like I thought that was just natural, and it was interesting to me to find out actually that's added in um, by humans. There's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just pointing out, you know, that actually isn't something that's naturally found in, oh, in right, milk. Oh, right, right. Well, I think yeah. p part of the reason that's there is because the, the nutritionists have found out that you need to have certain percentages or certain ratios of calcium, and and if you don't have the vitamin D the, in the proper ratios, you don't absorb the calcium. So that's part yeah, of the reason. So vitamin, yeah, yeah. So vitamin D is essential for calcium absorption. That's correct. Um, one thing that's interesting about what you just mentioned, though, is that the recommendations set by nutritionists are so... They're, they're guesstimates. They're very educated guesstimates, but there's no way to know for sure what everyone's requirement's going to be. And most of the time, the um, recommendations we see, or I should say the values you see on food and supplement labels when it says, like, I don't know, this cocoa puff has X amount of your vitamin D, it's based, based on very out-of-date versions of the recommendations. They're actually mostly from 1968, um, which I was very surprised to find out by. Uh, sorry, find out about. So where would you go, then, for better, more accurate, more up-to-date numbers? You know, if you really 
wanted to obsess over this. Uh, the the <laughs> body that, <laughs> yeah. which perhaps some people do, the body uh, that government, sorry, it's non-governmental body that actually makes these official recommendations is the Institute of Medicine's Food and Nutrition Board. And they have come up with updated dietary, um, sorry, recommended dietary intakes. Basically, I mean, up to the current moment, the first RDAs, as they're called, were developed after or during World War II. They've been updated since then. So if you really wanted to get the most up-to-date ones, you could look up, they're called dietary reference intakes from the Institute of Medicine. But if that sounds confusing, it is, and I personally don't even recommend doing that. I would go back to what you were originally um, suggesting, which is really try to get your vitamins as much as possible from foods that naturally contain them. So you're saying that the, the discovery of vitamins, that there are these little phantom things that are running around our food, is a fairly new thing. Yes. How how did they figure this out, and how did you decide how did you know that A is A? Is that it was A the first one that was discovered, and B was the second one, and then there were there are twelve and you know all different kinds of bees, and how, how do they even get their names? <laughs> well, you know it's such a complicated story. Basically, I went into this project totally naive, thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to uh, you know answer these very basic questions about vitamins, and people are going to have these answers for me. It'll be straightforward history. And it turns out it really was a very long process um, to discover the vitamins because in order to figure out vitamins, you have to figure out a number of other things. And one of the most important things of which is that you can have a vitamin deficiency disease, right? So you can have a disease that's caused by something that's not there, which if you think about it is a really weird concept, um, especially because in the early days of nutrition, it was also the kind of heyday of the beginnings of germ theory, the idea or the you know, fact that many diseases are caused by bacteria. So you had these horrible diseases um, that we now know are caused by vitamin deficiencies, like scurvy, which is vitamin C, pellagra, right. which is niacin, right? So people tried to look for bacterial explanations for these diseases for quite a long time. And it was very controversial. Like the first people who started to suggest, hey, I think this actually might be a deficiency in something, like not actually a bacteria, were not taken seriously. So that took a very long time to be accepted. And then to answer your question about how they were named, I find this totally fascinating. There was a um, Polish biochemist named Casimir Funk who was studying what we now know as thiamine, which is vitamin B1. And he actually never isolated it, but he was a genius in terms of coming up with a name for these things. So he proposed the word vitamine with an E on the end of it. And he did that by mashing up vita, which is a Latin word for life, and then putting amine on the end of it. Um, for the chemical structure, he thought all of them would turn out to be. And a lot of other of his contemporaries were like, we don't want to call that vitamin. Like, what the heck is that? You know, <laughs> we, we don't even know they're all this chemical structure, which they're not. So they suggested other things like food accessory factor or like food <laughs> hormone. Or okay. in the case of, of the guy who discovered or claimed to discover vitamin A, he called it um, fat-soluble A. And he called vitamin B water-soluble B. So okay. He, the early scientists didn't think this word was going to last. And in fact, they, they basically capitulated by chopping off that E and saying, okay, I guess we'll call it a vitamin if people are not going to give up on this word. And then they tacked on the letters that had also become common at that point to describe them. So to get you know to answer your question, right. the reason we call them those things is because you've got this Polish biochemist, like genius marketer guy who came up with vitamin, and then you had these these scientists who were discovering these, like chemically isolating them, who started to use these letters, and they just got mashed up together. Mm -hmm. And the reason it didn't go away in large part was because um, 
food marketers caught on to vitamins in the 20s, which is really when many of them were also being chemically identified for the first time. And they're like, that's a fantastic word. Like, vitamin is great, you know, <laughs> such a catchy word. And also, what an amazing substance to have discovered because people need them. They're invisible. They're tasteless. We can't measure them, but they exist in all these foods. So it became this wonderful marketing tool for um, food marketers to use. And it basically, you know, it took off from there and hasn't stopped since. Was the amine part related to amino acids? Yeah, so it was a, a yeah a structure, a nitrogen-containing nitrogen organic base. So he was working on thiamines, um, which turned out to be that. But the other interesting thing about vitamins, of which there are only 13, is that they're actually not all the same in terms of their chemistry. There's, as, as I learned when I was researching the book, there's no chemical definition of what a vitamin is. It's really more that um, they were grouped together by historical happenstance where they were discovered around the same time. They're, we do need them all. But then it, it's so interesting because then you can't actually pin down a definition, right? Because, like, vitamin D, you don't normally get from food. You get it from the ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Or, you know, some of the other ones you actually, your body can make on its own in small amounts. So you don't technically need to get it from food. Right. But I argue that because the word was just so fantastic, like we still think of these 13 substances as this family, when in reality they're like at best kind of, you know, like second cousins or something like that, or several times removed. Catherine Price is the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Catherine. My name's Rachel, and in eight years... I'll be an alcoholic. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, alcohol won't be my only problem. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Catherine Price, who is the author of Vitamania, How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food, wanted to have you talk a little bit about minerals. Did you manage to get a, across some of those things? Because as you were talking about vitamin D being necessary for for uh, calcium absorption, magnesium is another one that, that, that needs to be in there as well. And it seems like right. there must have been some overlap in learning about vitamins and learning about minerals as well. You know, actually, I really focused on the vitamins because they turned out to be so mysterious that there wasn't really room for the minerals. I mean, I, I will say, like, I, vitamin, I'm sorry, minerals are fascinating, and uh, there's a lot of interesting research going on about what they actually do in our bodies, but that's not my area of expertise. I really focused on the vitamins. Okay. Well, then we'll stick with vitamins. <laughs> so are, are there any that are absolutely essential well, they all are. They all are. You can't live without vitamins. I mean, basically what vitamins do is they, they help us with enzymatic reactions in our body. And what that means 
basically our, our bodies are run by chemical reactions. Like everything we do is a chemical reaction, turning oxygen into energy, breaking down the food that we eat, using that for energy, um, coming up with thoughts. They're all chemical reactions, creating new tissues, right? So these chemical reactions on their own would often be extremely slow, so slow that life couldn't actually exist. So we developed these things called enzymes, and those are basically molecules, large protein molecules that speed up these reactions many, many, many times faster. And they basically enable life to happen because they speed these things up so much that we can, you know, I just ate dinner and I'm going to be able to use that energy very quickly instead of like three years from now. Um, but these enzymes sometimes need help doing their job or we sometimes need help making the enzymes. And that's where vitamins come in. So many of vitamins' primary um, you know, roles is to help us either use the enzymes or create the enzymes in the first place. Um, and you basically need a continuous supply of vitamins in order to keep creating or using these enzymes, if that makes sense. So that's why they're essential. But I think that's a very interesting point, is that we can't live without the vitamins. But what's happened is that they've moved beyond this, this original necessary purpose, and they've become in our minds something bigger, where we think that if they're miraculous when you get them, if you're deficient in them, then they also must be miraculous if you take even more than you need. And that is not true. Well, yeah, that that's, I think, something that's really probably not known as well as it should be, that you can right. really, you can OD on some of these things in a yes. pretty significant way. And and I think you know, there's, there's been some change. I remember vitamin C for a while when I was younger was the miracle drug, and Linus Pauling was curing cancer mm -hmm. and winning Nobel Prizes. And then you find out, well, if you smoke and you take vitamin C, then you're in big trouble. And you know, different similar kinds of things with vitamin E and that they're, right, they, they've right. gone and the through some, some evolution. Yeah, I mean, the smoking thing actually, I believe, was with beta carotene. Vitamin C, actually, if you're a smoker, you need more of it because it helps clear free radicals from your body. But right, right. Yes, to your point, Linus Pauling, I mean, he won Nobel Prizes that did not have to do with vitamin C. <laughs> he basically got a lot of, you know, deserved fame for his achievements in chemistry, and then he, like, totally went a little bit off the deep end with the vitamin C recommendations, which are still really popular today. A lot of people, I mean, anyone who takes airborne or, or emergency, right, is buying into right. the idea that taking super doses of C is going to be good for you. Um, now, C is, like, relatively innocuous as they go because you're not going to become immediately poisoned by it. There are other ones, the fat-soluble vitamins like A, B, E, and K, that have many more issues with them, particularly A, which can be a problem for your liver and not that, like in amounts that are not that much greater than the, um, the recommended amount. So in general, I just caution people against believing in superdoses of any kind. And, yeah. and another point I make is just like with the C, for example, right? It's not, if I were to take 5,000 milligrams of C right now, nothing's really going to happen. I'll pee out a lot of it. People like to say Americans have the most expensive urine in the world because of our supplements, right? But I just don't entirely believe that if you saturate your body's systems with C over years, then nothing's going to happen. Yeah. So, like, a plant needs a certain amount of water, and if you one day just put a whole bucket of water on it, nothing bad's going to happen, even though it doesn't need the extra. But if you do that every day over months, over years, whatever, you're probably going to, like, rot the root system, yeah. and it's not going to be good. No, so I, I was... I was told yeah, to take. Anyway, just to caution them against you know super doses. Well, you know, I was told to take some vitamin B12 supplements, 
And uh-huh. I think vitamin B12 may be an, an exception to some of these vitamin B things because the kind that I got, it was Costco, and it, I mean, really and truly has 85,000 times the <laughs> the RDA. The, right, the right. Recommended daily. It's 85,000 times. And apparently, according to my doctor, uh, part of the problem is that your body just has a terrible time absorbing vitamin B12. And so yeah, you have to take B12. these massive doses. Yeah. What do you love <laughs> about mean, it? I, well, first of all, it's hot pink. I mean, what's not to love about that? I didn't know that that was possible, but I saw it in powdered form. It's hot. It looks like sidewalk chalk. Um, no, I love it for many reasons, really. Like, for example, the discovery story, which gets to your point about the absorption. If you don't have enough B12, which, by the way, the daily requirement is something like 1 67th of one grain of salt, where it's, it's like 2.4 micrograms. It's so small. If you don't have enough of it, it can cause uh, dementia, delusions, like permanent dementia, um, and pernicious anemia, which will kill you. So when it was discovered at the turn of the 20th century, the doctor who discovered it had these patients who were basically dying of pernicious anemia. And he decided that he was going to try a pretty crazy-sounding experiment to cure them. Namely, he would eat hamburger, and then he would make himself throw it up. And then he would take the half-digested hamburger and put it into his patient's stomach and oh. see what happened. Yeah. Right? Okay. There were no, like, review boards back then. <laughs> I don't think they knew. I think the patients did not know what was actually being given to them. But it worked. So these people were cured. And the reason is that in order to absorb B12, you need um, two stages to happen in your body. One is to have acid in your stomach that can cleave the molecule in a way that it's absorbable. And then you need another factor it's called to absorb those cleave molecules into your body. So as we age, it's very difficult um, to absorb adequate B12 because we often don't produce as much stomach acid. So for people over like 50 or 60, it's often recommended to take it as a supplement because it's better absorbed that way. Um, and also, I should note that it's only found in animal products because it's produced by a bacteria, so it's like by fermentation. So if you are a vegan, you need to watch out a bit B12 because it is possible to become deficient if you're excluding all um, animal products from your diet. Okay, so you... Can... your original question, I don't really think you need 85,000 times what the RDA says in the back of that bottle, but I think it'd be pretty hard for them to have a pill that only had 167th of one grain of salt worth of B12 <laughs> in it. I guess you just inhale it or something, I don't know. Yeah, right, exactly. But, so you've been researching this in, in a fairly serious way for quite a while. Has it changed the way that you eat or the number of pills you take or what you take? Has it, has it changed your life in any way? Um, yeah, I think it's made me feel better in many ways about what I'm eating and more confident about how to interpret um, all the headlines we see all the time in the newspapers and magazines, whatever, about superfoods or new um, dietary studies that are coming out. And to speak to the first part, I eat a lot of vegetables. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I do try to eat non-processed foods as much as possible. I have type 1 diabetes, so I really need to be careful about processed carbohydrates in particular. And what this research made me realize is that I probably am getting most of my vitamins just fine through those foods. And perhaps even more importantly, there's just all these other chemical substances in those foods that are not vitamins, the purposes of which we don't really know, but that I'm getting when I'm eating, say, a strawberry. So that made me feel a lot better because if you're eating like breakfast cereal and it says you're getting all these vitamins and minerals, that's just because we added them back in. You basically take grain, process it so it doesn't have any vitamins or minerals. Um, there are very few of its original micronutrients in it. 
and then you put them back in. And when you do that, you don't have the other stuff that used to be in that grain, which might be having beneficial health effects. So that was one thing. And then in terms of the nutritional headlines, I mean, when I started this book, as I mentioned, I just thought I'd be able to find answers to these, to my seemingly simple questions, like what does the vitamin do in our body? Like what does vitamin C do? And I realized we don't have all the answers for vitamins. And when I realized that, I realized, well, if that's like one of the most basic building blocks of nutrition we think there is, that means we really don't know all the answers to nutrition in general. And you really do need to take headlines in newspapers and magazines with a big grain of salt because their job is to have news and have headlines. And if they just always said, like, hey, carrots are good for you, you know, <laughs> it's not really that interesting. Right, right. But there, so there doesn't seem okay. to have been that much in the way of advances, though, recently. Except for you need a lot. I mean, but, you know, are there new kinds of vitamins that would, they haven't been discovered yet? Well, I don't think you're going to find new vitamins, frankly, because um, because of the fact that vitamins, by the definition that's used most frequently today, they're associated with a particular deficiency disease. Like I was saying, scurvy with vitamin C, for example. Some of the stuff that's becoming trendy and more research now, like, say, lycopene and tomatoes, um, you're not going to have a lycopene deficiency that's going to kill you, you know, so it's not going to be a vitamin. But it might be a very important micronutrient. But I guess what I took away from this project is like, okay, well, I guess I could look up all of the studies on PubMed about lycopene or look through the New York Times archive for articles about it. But I also could just go eat a tomato, you know? So like, <laughs> There's that. Well, I don't really need to bother with all of those right. getting confused by the headlines. I, I, I guess what really resonated with me was there was this guy in the 20s named Elmer McCollum who was the guy who um, discovered vitamin A. And he started writing for a popular press magazine for women. It was McCall, and he wrote for like 15 years. And he proposed this thing called the protective diet, which basically was eat um, a diet rich in foods that naturally contain vitamins. He also was like really into milk, but that's because he was from Wisconsin or working in Wisconsin. But anyway, he wasn't able to like measure the vitamins. They didn't know how much we needed at all at that point. Um, so we're very different today in that we can measure vitamins. And we have like a rough idea, as I mentioned, of our requirements, even if they're not perfect. But I think his advice is still so useful today. It's like, don't worry about the yeah. latest articles about nutrition or whether walnuts is going to be the superfood of the century or whatever. Like, just focus on foods that where their vitamins are there because nature put them there. Chances are nature puts some other stuff in there, too, that's good for you, you know, and yeah. just relax about it. Catherine Price, the author of Vitamania. How Vitamins Revolutionize the Way We Think About Food. Catherine, thanks very much. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.